By now, many of you have discovered I am a lover of poetry. Now, perhaps in school, you read one of Robert Burns' wonderful poems, To a Mouse. Uh, And it's a very strange little poem to our ears. It takes place as a farmer who has been tilling his ground and destroys the mouse nest. And he basically apologizes for doing that. But what is really great about this poem, it contains perhaps one of the most famous quotes from a poem in the English language. A lot of people don't even know where it comes from. But I'm pretty sure you have heard somewhere in your life, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. In other words, you really plan things out and they just blow up in your face. Uh, I would ask for a show of hands. How many have experienced this? But I think probably all of us would raise our hands, if we're honest. If we're honest. But we need go no further to get proof that about this quote than seeing the, what followed Jonah's mighty plan to escape the Lord. Uh, there's no way on earth to look at this and, and not realize Jonah's plan Uh, not only went awry, it went terribly awry. Uh, Please rise as we hear what happened. And I want you to to pay very close attention. I know the kids got a taste of this passage, but I want us to to really look at it through our heart. But we're going to be looking at verses, excuse me, it should be 4 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind from the sea, on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he We'll take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of the heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this time, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. 
You may be seated and may God bless the reading of his word. It's crucially important for us to understand what's going on in this text, for us to see beyond just what it says and know the intent and purpose God is doing it. You see, this text actually revealed the truth that God was actively moving to bring his prophet back into obedience. Now, looking at it, you might not think it. It sounds like he was trying to kill him. But it was all part of a sovereign God's plan to bring his disobedient son back. As we examine the text, we will discover the events that God's plan gave to to bring his prophet home. What events? What is going on? So we're going to take a look, all right? And right off, the very first event we see a story about the truth about consequences, that's what we're looking at today. This is all about the truth about consequences. And the first event shows us a storm is raised. A storm is raised. Uh, basically, God used a disaster at sea to reach his hard-hearted prophet. Jonah didn't want to do what God wanted him to. So he's running away. And he chooses, I told you, a transportation that most Israelites wouldn't have taken, a boat. He wants to get away quickly, and God raises up a storm. And the interesting thing about this, in the original text, a normal flow of a text in Hebrew has the verb first and the noun, the person who did the verb, after. Here, for emphasis, the subject, the Lord, comes first. The Lord hurled a storm. It's for emphasis. The writer wants his readers to know beyond any doubt this is not a normal storm. God was doing this, and clearly it was not a normal. Please notice that verb. He hurled it at them. He threw a storm at them. And uh, the, the text takes a really interesting and strange thing. It almost personifies the boat. It almost sounds like the boat said, the boat was ready itself to just crack up. The storm was so terrifying in its intensity and its swiftness that the sailors began praying to each of their different gods. Uh, we don't know how many sailors are on board, but apparently there were many different gods, and it wasn't unusual for that to happen in pagan life. They're each praying to their own god, and most of them probably had gods of the storm and fertility. Take care of us, hoping one of them would save the day. Years and years ago, I read of a storm at sea that happened in the 1800s. And the passengers were, were terrified, and they thought they were going to die. And the captain said, no, 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 look at my sailors. They're swearing up a storm. We've still got a chance. Listen to their profanity. We have a chance. If you see them praying, we're doomed. So these men are praying. They know they can't fix this. And when the prayers don't work, they start doing the unthinkable for a cargo ship. They're throwing the cargo off the board, trying to, to make the ship lighter. But this was no ordinary storm, for God raised it up to confront Jonah's sin. Now what does this have to do with us? The reality is 
Sometimes the disasters of life are related to our sin. I want you to look at that carefully. Sometimes the disasters of life are related to our sin. Now, I'm not suggesting that everything, every time something bad happens to you, it has a direct connection uh, or causation by a particular specific sin of yours. I don't believe that. Jesus was asked by his disciples about a blind man who sinned, his mother or him. Well, the man was born blind, so they're asking him, did he sin in the womb? He said, no one. This is to the glory of God. But sometimes a sin that touches our hearts brings trouble along with it. Let me introduce you to some really nice looking mushrooms. Don't they look good? They're called the honey mushroom in popular name. They are, are edible. You might not ever want to eat them when you hear, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. These mushrooms are Amarillia osteae. Uh, in Oregon's Malheur Forest, a fungus spreads. Now, what I want you to know, these beautiful mushrooms... This is not a bunch of mushrooms. Looks like, boy, it'd be really easy to pick mushrooms there. Uh, They're growing everywhere. This isn't a bunch of mushrooms. This is one living organism that covers 3.7 miles in this forest. It is the largest living organism ever found. It started from a single microscopic score, spore, and as it's been growing, it sends out shoestring filaments throughout the forest. And it's been growing for thousands of years. Uh, it is estimated at this point in time to weigh 35,000 pounds. One organism, not a bunch of separate, And it only grows one to three feet a year. So you can tell this has been growing for a very long time. And someone said, if you were flying above the forest, you would not see the mushrooms. All you would see were a bunch of dead trees. Because these, this fungus grows on the trees and sucks all of the, the nutrients it needs out. They have tried to kill it. They have tried to con, control it, and they simply can't. Now, what I want to say here, and I hope you will listen with your spirit and understand my intent, we cannot easily dismiss all of the problems of life by that old expression, bad things happening to good people. Wayne Grudem, who is a Baptist theologian, said, membership in God's family Great privilege though it is, must not lead to the presumption that disobedience will pass unnoticed or undisciplined. The reality is, when we decide to disobey God in whatever form that takes, we decide we're not going to love our neighbor. We decide we're not going to pray for those who despitefully use us. We decide, I know I have a commission to make disciples, but I'm really not good at that. 
so I won't. When that begins to happen, the tendrils move through all of our lives. It touches every part of who we are and can bring consequences of pain, sorrow, depression, guilt, and it can weigh heavily on our heart. You see, I believe in the face of turmoil, we need to be honest in our assessments of our lives before God. If we find ourselves battling all these different kind of struggles and pain, we need to honestly seek out whether we have brought God's discipline upon us. We need to see, where are we, Lord, with you? One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 139, David says, God, you know everything about me. If I tried to run away from you, I couldn't. You know everything. You even know my thoughts before I ever speak them. And having said, God knows everything there is to know about me, he ends the psalm in a very strange way. In verses 23 and 24 of Psalm 139, David wrote, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, why would David, who has said, God, you know everything about me. You know the inside of me. You know what I do. You know what I plan. You know what I think. Why would he then say, God, search me? Because I believe David was really asking God, search my heart and show me. Am I causing you pain? Have I sinned even in ways I'm not aware of? God, show me my heart so that you can then lead me into the way of life and meaning. And I believe that should be our prayer. I'm not trying to heap guilt upon you. I'm not trying to say again that everything the bad that happens is a direct correspondence to sin. But I know there have been moments in my life when I've been hit hard that I've had to go to God and say, Lord, am I somehow out of your will? And there have been times the Lord Spirit has said yes. Yes. So the storm that God sent led to the next important event of bringing Jonah back to obedience. A rebellious heart is confronted. A rebellious heart is confronted. And at this point, the confrontation does not come directly from God. No, something very different has happened. At this point in time, and I want you to let this sink in, in all different ways, a pagan sea captain called a prophet of God out. Jonah, the prophet, and we get, again, we know he was a real prophet. I shared with you last week in Kings, he prophesied according to the Lord. But he's gone down in the deepest part of the ship, And he's fallen asleep. Now we don't know why. Uh, Some have suggested maybe 
He was depressed over his disobedience and it was that sleep that happens to us when when there's just such an aching sadness over our lives. Others have suggested maybe he just didn't get it. He didn't know how bad the storm was. We don't know, but whatever the reason, I can guarantee you this. Jonah asleep in the hold of the ship has a very different connotation in the New Testament when we find another man asleep in the middle of a horrible storm who also is wakened. Don't you care about us? Why are you sleeping? And Jesus asleep in the boat was asleep because he knew my Father will watch out for us. And he got up and he calmed the storm. Whatever caused Jonah to sleep, it wasn't the same thing. But the captain of the ship finds him. And please, when it says that he confronted him, please don't think he gently touched him. Uh, sir, could you please wake up? Uh, we, we really might need your help. I believe he's shouting, how can you be sleeping? Get up! Pray to your God. Maybe he will help us. Because, man, we need all the help we can get. Get up! You see, the captain did not see Jonah as a prophet of God. At this point, he doesn't know that. All he knows, they need at least one more person in this very desperate prayer meeting. Maybe your God will listen where ours have not. Do not let the irony of this situation elude you. This is a pagan sea captain, a Gentile who worships false gods, and he is pleading with a Hebrew prophet to pray to his God something Jonah should have already been doing. The late A.J. Glaze Jr., he was a professor at NOBTS, and during my time in the doctoral program, I got a chance to take a class with him. Um, he noted that an unbeliever was pleading for spiritual action on the part of a believer. For he understood the gravity of the event while the man of God, the prophet of God, slept. And then Glaze said, It is a sad commentary when those who are committed to the truth of God's word have to be prodded by a lost world into spiritual activity. And folks, it sometimes happens. The world may challenge us when we fail to live up to our profession. When I tell you the world is watching, it's not to try to make you paranoid. But folks, if you name the name of Christ, the world is watching. And some of them are watching, waiting for the day you, you fall so they can mock you. We sometimes cringe with anger when the word hypocrite is used and cast in the direction of the church. I remember I was pastoring a church in Texas. I did not know that they had not only had one split, they had two splits in the five years before I came. And the way we found that out, we picked a road and just arbitrarily started going down and introducing to ourselves. Made six stops and five of those said, 
we'll never go back to church with those hypocrites. And for over a year, I quit visiting anybody I didn't know because I was afraid if they said, use the word hypocrite one more time, I might punch them in the nose. And then they'd have another hypocrite to talk about. Surely we know if we have paid attention to church history, if we are sensitive to the things of God throughout the years, throughout the ages, the church has earned this title. Every time a quest for power leads a church into a split. Every time brothers and sisters in the Lord allow their pride to override the need for reconciliation. Every time we look down at our noses at the sinners of this world instead of reaching out a hand of reconciling love. And every time we turn our back on the written Word of God that tells us this is the way I want you to live. The world watches. And it watches closely. When we walk in these ways, the church may say, you need to wake up. I've told you before about Penn Teller, uh, half of a comedy magic duo. Teller was one time approached by a young man, very fervent in his faith, who tried to witness to him. And, and Teller is an avowed atheist, and he, he rejected everything the young man had to say, but he talked about it in an interview and said that he was actually very proud of this young man. He admired him because he dared to come to him and say, look, I know you don't know Christ. I do and I want you to know him. And then Teller said one of the most scathing things I've ever heard in my life. He said, if you're a Christian and you believe that I'm lost and I'm about to go to hell because of my lostness, how evil do you have to be not to tell me about Jesus Christ. How evil are you that you're so afraid of offending me that you would rather let me go to hell than have a confrontation? Folks, the world will challenge just like a pagan god. Now that, that captain didn't know Jonah was a real prophet of God. All he knew is they needed help. And a pagan wakes up a believer in God. Now when we are so challenged, we must not simply ignore what might be true. See, that's the way we take it most of the time. When we are confronted by the, by the world, or we are challenged, or we are put down, we just kind of tend to shake our heads and, oh, they don't know Jesus. They, they, they don't know any truth at all. And, and I don't have to listen to that. But when the world calls us out, I believe we should seek out the Lord to determine, Lord, am I? Do, what, do, do, do the things I say and the things I do in this world, are they so out of balance that what I do nullifies everything I say? Am I wrong? When the world is in the turmoil of the storms of life, we need to wake up from our slumber. We need to pray. We need to ask God help us. 
Lord, if we're not being who you call us to be, if we're not doing what you call us to do, wake us up and get us moving because there are people in the world who need to know the truth. We want to be part of that. Now, did Jonah pray as the captain asked? There's no evidence in the book that bears his name. It doesn't say that he did. All we know for sure is that this confrontation led Jonah back onto the top of the ship where a very unexpected event happened. Uh, Jonah would not have, never have thought about this happening. But it was all part of the journey back to obedience. What happened? A sin is found out. A sin is found out. We look at the text and we hear the sailors come up with an idea. Look, this isn't an ordinary storm. Something has happened that caused it to be raised. So we want to find out. And the sailors cast lots to find out who was responsible for the storm. And they got their answer. Now folks, you need to understand. Okay, They got their answer. They found out it's Jonah. And before you dismiss this ungodly habit of casting lots, I need to remind you that casting of lots was to determine the decision was common in Israel. God actually in some places talked about the lot. It was very common in the countries of the ancient Near East. Now this wasn't understood as a flip of coin. You know, I'm a flip of coin. We're going to see who's got the best lot. Heads or tails. No, when marked stones would be used, and they could be used in a variety of ways. Sometimes in a container, it would be shaken up. Somebody would reach in and pull out a stone. We don't know exactly how it happened here. But the idea was the gods would guide the stone. In this case, the sovereign Lord of the universe did guide the stone. And expressed his sovereignty over Jonah in this situation. Jonah's name comes up. By the way, in the New Testament, there's only one case of the people of God casting lots. It's found in the first chapter of Acts when they were trying to decide who should take over a role of apostle left vacant by Judas. They cast a lot and Matthias was chosen. And then it's never heard of again in the New Testament. Why? Because on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit invaded the church. From that point on, followers of Christ had a much more certain direction coming directly from the Spirit of God. So they cast the lots. Now everybody on board knows who's responsible. But they ask again, Who is it that caused this? Now, a couple of different things could be happening. One, they might be trying to give Jonah a a chance to defend himself. To say, no, no, it's it's, it's really not me. Or it may just be they're looking at at him. You better tell us right now, who are you? What have you done? Where are your people? What's going on? Who are you? And how did this happen? 
And Jonah then answered their questions honestly. I'm a Hebrew and I serve the Lord God. And he, in that text, I hope you notice the, the Lord in all capital letters. That is the covenant name of God. I serve Yahweh. And he, apparently he goes on because we're told the next thing they're terrified because they now know he's running from God. So when he said, I'm the one, he went ahead and told them his story. And Jonah is outed. He's the sinner that caused the problem. You see, there are times when well-hidden sins will be discovered. We can hide what we do rather effectively as people. We're trying to rationalize our actions. We can come up with everything to, to keep us looking better. Do you remember David? For a full year after his sin with Bathsheba, he thought he got away with it. He thought nobody knew. Until the Lord sent Nathan to confront him with his sin. And when he did, David found out the principle that is found in Numbers 32.23. You may be sure that your sin will find you out. The truth is simple. Even if we are able to hide our sin from everybody else around us, there is one from whom we cannot hide. Adam and Eve tried it in the garden. Jonah tries it on a ship. But no matter where we go and where we run, the Lord knows us. But sometimes the facade we build up to make everybody think, I've got it all together. Me and Jesus are like that. Sometimes those crumble down. Throughout the years, many famous Christian leaders have been discovered to fail their Lord. But it's not only the famous who can fail. Now what we need to understand. When our failures come to life, we must be honest and not evasive. Normally, confession of sin is between ourselves and our God. Just like in the book of 1 Corinthians, when Paul says, before the Lord's Supper, examine yourselves, that's what happens most of the time with who we are. I go to God, I confess my anger, my lust, my whatever, my covetousness, whatever it may be. But there are times public confession of sin is appropriate and needed. James, in the context of praying for people who are sick, made this statement in James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So there are times public confession is what is needed. But what do we do about those low-down, stinking, hypocritical Christians who have just blown it? What do we do about those sinners? 
who name the name of Christ and fail. Well, if a, few, a couple months ago you were paying attention, you already know the answer to that question. Because we've covered it in the book of Galatians. In Galatians 6.1, the Apostle Paul said, Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself or you also may be tempted. You see, the thing is, oftentimes when somebody's caught, the first thing we want to do is hang them out to dry. Kick them out of the church, kick them to the curb, walk away from them, write their names off the book, all that kind of stuff. When Paul says it to Galatians, the very first thing you need to do is try to reach them. Try to bring them back to the Lord. Try to bring them and restore them and help them along the way. But do it with great wisdom and care so you don't get caught up in sin yourself. Folks, we need to honestly assess ourselves and take a look and not try to hide from it. And then church When somebody does fall, we need to help them stand back up on their feet. Now, with the sin found out, one final event had to take place that would bring Jonah back to obedience. The final event in our story. A decision is made. A decision is made. After finding out who caused the storm, something has to give. Something has to happen. And I want to tell you with everything in me, I believe that in this moment in time, both Jonah and the sailors acted honorably in finding the resolution that was desperately needed. They are both acting with honor. Both sets. Now Jonah. Jonah does the honorable thing. He says, I'm the cause of all this. And for you to be safe, you need to throw me overboard. Now, there are some, rather cynically, I believe, who suggest what Jonah is really doing is committing suicide. Throw me over, and I'll die, and I won't have to deal with what God wants me to deal with. Now, obviously, Jonah can't have it already known what's going to happen. He doesn't know that God is preparing a fish. But I don't believe it's a question of him saying, look, I don't want to do what God wants, so throw me over, I die, you'll be okay, and everybody will be okay. I believe that Jonah truly knew he was at fault. And an amazing work of grace is happening right now. The knowledge that he was at fault and that these men might die did the unthinkable for Jonah. It caused him to have compassion on a handful of pagan people. Something he did not have for Nineveh We'll see throughout the story he has a hard time with that with Nineveh. 
But he was actually willing to sacrifice. He was willing to die, not to escape God. He was willing to die so these men could escape their deaths. As far as I'm concerned, that's an honorable decision on his part. But the sailors are reluctant to do it. These pagan people have just heard this Hebrew who says his God is going to kill them because of his sin. They don't want to throw him overboard. How do we know it? Because we're told instead they tried harder to row to shore. And when the sea was getting worse, they finally understand there is only one thing we can do. And they cry out and please Remember, when they pray to God, they are using the same covenant name that Jonah used. Yahweh, please don't put this man's death on us. Please don't let innocent blood cover us. Now they don't know everything that's going on. So they don't know enough about God to know how Jonah offended him and what happened. So they're still not sure. But in the end, they did the only thing they could. They threw Jonah overboard. They tried to stop it. They tried hard. And then the next amazing And it may have only been a one moment in time grace. The sea calmed down. The storm that came so quickly and so fiercely that it frightened well-trained sailors is now calm. What did they do? They greatly feared the Lord. Our Proverbs says that. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They feared the Lord and they made a sacrifice to him. And we can go ahead and understand that on a ship it would not have been a burning sacrifice. That that would have been a good idea. But they sacrifice to the Lord and they make vows to the Lord. Now what happened to these men? We don't know. The Bible never addresses them again. Did they really convert? Did they decide we're not going to worship our gods anymore? We're going to worship Yahweh. We simply don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us. But for one moment in time, these pagan sailors had revealed to them that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew people, was superior to their God. Yahweh reigned and was worthy of their giving him vows. So for us, action is called for when the child of God is confronted by failure. Action is called for. When we realize we've done something wrong, when we realize we have sinned, Now, obviously, our first action is to confess before God. 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, then we make Him a liar. And His Word has no place in our hearts. Catch that. We confess to God. We don't try to play games. We don't rationalize. We don't blame. Lord, forgive me. And if we say, oh, no, 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 no. No, you don't understand what happened. I didn't sin. I made a mistake. And it was his fault. Then God says, you're a liar. You're a liar. But more may be involved. We may, be, we may need to go to the one we sinned against, seeking forgiveness. Trying to build a bridge of reconciliation, if at all possible. If it has infected the whole body, we may need to make public confession in front of the church itself. We may be called to make restitution for what we've done wrong. But we need to ask God, Lord, I have sinned and I ask your forgiveness and cleansing. Is there anything further I need to do to find connection again with the brothers and sisters I've hurt. So, when we see the truth of our failure, we must consciously decide to do what is called for. At this point, we must be open and open our hearts before God and seek His direction. And we must make a decision when we understand. And sometimes the Scripture spells out what we should do. Again, whether taking in a fault, try to make reconciliation. When we understand what God wants, we need to be committed. Father, with Your grace, I'll do what I need to do. A decision to come back to your God in repentance, seeking his will, is crucial in our walk with God. Now folks, we have looked at our text. We've come to discover the basic truth behind it all. What is the point of What are these events telling you and me today that we need to understand, we need to embrace, we need to act upon? What is our truth today? Christians need to understand the important principle that consequences will follow when they refuse to listen to God. We need to sear this into our hearts, into our brains, to understand. Yes, I'm a child of God. I belong to Him. I'm in His hand. And He tells me no man can cast, snatch me out of that hand. But He also tells us, in Hebrews 12, that our Heavenly Father disciplines us. If He doesn't, we're not legitimate children. So I need to know I need to understand if I choose
to ignore God's will and purpose in my life, if I choose to walk outside of obedience, at some point, I will face consequences.